Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you all, and if you're visiting with us, a special welcome. If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And if you're visiting with us, our elders will be happy to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, please keep this Bible and start reading the book of Romans with us. If you've been with us for a while, you'll know that one of the things we do is we read through the Bible verse by verse because we want to see what God's Word says and apply it to our lives. And we want you to learn how to do that. There's no magic power that pastors have to somehow keep you in the dark and you have to depend on us. So when you're starting a new book of the Bible, it's important and helpful to get some background. And one of the ways you can do that, I really encourage you, if you haven't gotten a study Bible, to go ahead and get a study Bible. We do sell them, but we don't make any money on them. We do have a cart or talk to one of the pastors. We'll help you to find a study Bible. But when you get a study Bible, it'll just give you a little background of the book. If you went to a bookstore, you wouldn't just grab a white book with, with no cover, no title, no table of contents. You'd have no idea what you're reading. So the book of Romans is the longest of Paul's letters and perhaps the most well-known and life-changing book. It was written to this Roman church that Paul had never visited. And one of the things that makes this book interesting is that people think Paul was just explaining his beliefs here, but it's bigger than that because there was a situation going on. In around the 40s, there were Christians coming into to Rome and spreading the gospel, and many of them were Jewish, and so they were in conflict with the Jews who were already there, and they were causing such a, a, a raucous, and we know this from history, that the emperor expelled all the Jews from Rome for five years. So all Jews had to leave Rome for five years. Well, the result of that is that Christianity continued to spread in Rome, but it was primarily Gentiles who were now filling the assemblies. But when the Jews came back in 49 AD, all of a sudden they were experiencing all kinds of conflict because the Gentiles had a misunderstanding of their role in God's plan, and the Jews and the Gentiles weren't playing nicely together. So more than just Paul explaining his beliefs about the gospel, he was trying to solve and, and, and bring together the Jews and Gentiles in God's program, which will be fun to learn about. But I want to encourage you, no matter if you've never read the book of Romans or you've read it a hundred times, Martin Luther once said, every Christian should know this book word by word and feed on it daily as bread for their soul. And maybe you are familiar with this, but many, many years ago, Martin Luther was a young man as uh, growing up in the Catholic faith, he was in a thunderstorm and he was so afraid he was going to die that, that he made a vow that if God spared him, he would become a priest. And so he went ahead and became a priest. He went on and got further education, actually got a doctorate in theology. And he was appointed to teach the book of Romans. But the more he studied the book of Romans, the more he was looking at what he was learning as the official doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And as he was reading Romans, he kept reading the phrase, the righteousness of God. And he literally said, I began to hate God because he demanded that I be perfectly righteous, and I knew I couldn't do that. But God opened his eyes, and he began to understand that the righteousness of God is, is given to sinners through the mercy of Christ by faith, not works. And it transformed him so much that he began to proclaim this everywhere. He wanted to translate the Bible into German and give it to the, to the people, and that began or was a part of what's often called the Protestant Reformation. But we're going to begin this morning by looking at the first 17 verses, and I want to encourage you if, you, if you could, set apart some time this week and try to read through the whole book of Romans. You're like, the whole book? 
come on, you sit and watch movies for two and three hours, all right? Just, it won't take you maybe an hour to just read through and try to get the big picture, and then we'll continue to study it. I, I promise you, God's going to bless you. I've been teaching Romans for 20-some years. Every time I read it and teach it, I'm still learning. I'm still blessed. God's word is still alive and powerful. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, I ask that you will bless your word now, and as we're growing in our understanding of the word of God and of the gospel, may Jesus become more precious. May he be exalted. May our focus be on him. May we love him and serve him. And may you get all the glory and praise as you use the book of Romans to transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first thing we're going to look at is the first seven verses where it's normal for Paul to introduce himself. But he has a lengthy explanation about himself in verses one through seven. And what he's going to do is really two things. It's all about what he's going to call the gospel. And that's the theme of this book, the gospel. And we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that. But the point is, he wants to tell us about how he was called to preach the gospel. And he also wants to tell us what is the content of this good news message. So let's read verses one through seven. Then I want to come back and make some comments. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And he was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved by God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Paul's calling. He begins by introducing himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that was the, a, a slave, the lowest form of slave. And what Paul understood is that when you become a Christian, you're completely forgiven of your sins, but you then voluntarily give yourself back to Christ and say, Lord, because you saved me, because I was going to go to hell, for the rest of my life, I want to yield myself. I want to learn how to serve you. Remember Pastor John preached last week, we're learning how to live not for ourselves, but for him. But then Paul declares his office and he says, I'm called as an apostle. And the reason that's really important because the idea here is his authority, okay? And I want you to think about this idea of, of authority when it comes to religious beliefs. Millions of people flocked down to Philadelphia this weekend because they have a belief in a certain religious authority. Everybody believes in some religious authority. Even if you're an atheist, you do believe in authority. And one of the ways you can kind of think that through is to ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? So, if you're Jewish, you would say the Old Testament is my authority. If you're a Muslim, you would say the Koran is my authority. If you're Catholic, you would say the Bible and the church traditions are my authority. And if the traditions differ here, we're going with the church traditions. If you're, if you're an, a born-again Christian and, and, and you're reading and studying the scriptures, you should come to the conclusion that the Bible itself and the Bible alone is the final authority of what I believe and how I behave. Even atheists have an authority. Well, why do you believe there's no God? Because my intellect 
is my authority. And, and based on what I've seen, there is no God. So Paul declares that he's an apostle. Now, what he's saying here in Galatians, he says, I'm an apostle not from men nor through any agency, but through Christ alone. So he's claiming God appointed me as an apostle. And therefore, this gospel that I'm announcing has an authority from God. I'm not stuttering. He's saying this is the truth. Now, you might not believe that. You might not believe that the Bible is God's absolute authority. But I would at least encourage you to start reading it and studying it before you go, ah, it's just another book. Because the Bible says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Lord. And so Paul's claiming here that, hey, this gospel that I'm about to tell you, this is from God. This is the only message. This is the true way to have a relationship with God. And because of that, Paul considered himself set apart, look at verse 1, for the gospel. Now, we're going to talk about the gospel as we go through the whole book. But the gospel is not just for unsaved people. The gospel is for Christians to constantly rehearse, constantly learn it more deeply and see how it transforms our lives. And he was so excited, he said, I'm set apart for the gospel. Then in verse 9, he said, I serve God in the preaching of the gospel. In verse 15, he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he unloads this whole book, and at the end, he says, and now God can establish you according to my gospel. And so we're going to go deep, and we're going to go wide, and we're all going to be confronted continually with the gospel. But one of the things Paul understood is that the gospel is a message from God, and this is a message that needs to be communicated to everybody. But one of the things I think American Christians don't understand is that the gospel demands a response. It's not just information. It's not just, hey, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But there's implications to that. People are called to respond to the gospel. And those of you who get it, you go, I understand. If you don't get saved, you're not going to go to heaven if you don't respond to the gospel. You and I are out there trying to reach people, and sometimes it's really frustrating because we're like, I talk to my friends. Nobody listens. One of the things Paul's going to tell us about gospel ministry is that we don't need to depend on our strength. Look at verse 5. As Paul's describing his ministry of the gospel, his calling, then we'll come back to the content of it. In verse 5, he says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Now, I want to talk about that bringing about the obedience of faith, but as a parent, if you're a Christian, you're like, I want my kid to become a Christian. Well, you can't make your kid become a Christian, but God gives you grace and that grace here is this divine enabling power that enables us to do gospel ministry. And so whether you're leading a Bible study, teaching Sunday school, just trying to bring your children to the Lord, gospel ministry is always empowered by God's grace. And so make it a habit. Pray, Lord, I want to see people saved, but would you give me grace? And you might say, well, Pastor Tom, I'm not, in, I'm not feeling adequate. You don't need to be. The Bible says God will make you adequate because his gospel is powerful. But notice that Paul understood that his goal was not to just go out and tell people, hey, believe in Jesus. And then he goes, we got seven soul scalps. How many people got saved? But look what, look what he says he wants to see happen. He wants to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Now, there's two ways that this probably could be taken. One is that the obedience of faith is he's simply saying this, I want to share the gospel with people and I want them to obey God by faith. So the obedience is, 
is the faith here. It's, it's the act of obedience by putting your faith in Christ. And that could be what he means, but we rarely talk that way. I'll give you an example. If you said, yeah, I was witnessing to this person, we don't say to, say to people, did they obey the gospel? We don't even think that way, right? But Paul did. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he said, those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. So when God says that he sent his son into the world to die for sinners, and he raised him from the dead, and he offers eternal life to everyone who repents and believes in him, he's giving an invitation, but he's also giving a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take that volitional step of your will to put your faith in him, because if you don't, you'll perish. It's not just, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in him. I don't believe in Santa Claus. To believe in Christ, that in itself is an act of obedience enabled by God. And if you're still visiting here, that's the most important thing is that you get it and you put your faith in Christ. You make that decision of your will to obey God by saying, I do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. With my heart and soul, I trust him. But he might also mean here, and, and this is, could be translated this way, the obedience that comes from faith. Because what happens in American culture is a lot of times all we're worried about is did someone raise their hand? You know, Johnny said the prayer when he was five. But he lives like the devil. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is that if a person really puts their faith in Christ, if you're really saved, you are going to begin to learn to obey God. You're going to want to obey God. In fact, the gospel of, or the book of 1 John says this, if anyone says, I have come to know him and doesn't want to obey him, he's a liar. So there are a lot of people in America who are like, yeah, I'm saved, I raised my hand. Well, yeah, it is a gift by faith that you receive. But there's no such thing as a person who says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then their life never begins to change and they never begin to obey Christ. That's the natural outcoming of what it means to believe in Christ. God changes your heart. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who's really born again will keep on practicing sin because God's seed abides in him. So you don't get to heaven by obeying God. You get to heaven by putting your faith in Christ. But one of the ways you can know that your faith is real is because you're beginning to be obedient as a result of your gratitude to Christ. This is why Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, and then teach them to raise their hand. He said, teach them to obey all things, whatever I commanded you. And so we gather together and we go, I don't obey God perfectly. I mess up a lot. But if you don't even care about obeying God, you're like, oh, yeah, I live with my boyfriend or, yeah, I lie. What's a big deal? You know, I smoke weed or, you know, come on. And that's not even on your radar. Don't assume just because you raised your hand that that's what it means to believe. So that's Paul's goal. But why did he want people saved? Well, look at verse 5. For his namesake, for the glory of God. Because every time a person comes to Christ, that's another soul that for eternity is going to be with God, joining us in worship. Think how exciting that is, that, that one day the Bible says men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we're all going to fall down, we're going to go, you are worthy, Jesus. Worthy is the lamb who was praised. This great song and anthem of worship is going up throughout all the world. And this is what Paul prayed for. And this is, I pray this all the time for our church. Paul said this, I want God's grace to spread to more and more people. Why? 
because it causes the abounding of thanks to the glory of God. And every time someone comes and says, Tom, I got saved, or my friend got saved, or my child got saved, that's one more resounding praise to the glory of God. Amen? So, that's Paul's calling, and he says to the Romans, you also, verse 6, are called of Jesus Christ. You are dearly loved by God and called as saints. Now you're like, wait, what? Well, two things I want you to see here. Number one, if you're a Christian, this word beloved is only used of Christians. God loves the world. He loves sinners. But he doesn't call unbelievers his dearly beloved. He calls his children his dearly beloved. Meaning you are really, really special to him. And you're like, yeah, but you don't, Pastor Tom, I yelled at my my wife this week or I kicked the dog or I said a bad word or I, I fell with my addiction. God doesn't love us on our performance. If he's called you to himself for all eternity, you would dearly beloved to him and nothing we can do can separate us from his love. But he also calls you a saint. You're like, oh, no, no. The Pope just called this guy a saint. Listen, a saint just means someone who's set apart for God. And it doesn't mean you're living like a saint. It means God sees you as one who's set apart and forgiven. So if you're a believer... You're a saint. And you're looking over at your spouse going, a saint? Well, you're a saint in progress, but from position, God sees you as totally forgiven. But let's look back real quick and talk about the content of this gospel. Paul says, let me tell you about this gospel I'm preaching. Number one, he says, this gospel was promised beforehand, verse two, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God's plan of salvation was not like, I'm gonna send Jesus to the Jews. Oh no, the Jews didn't accept him. We use a football illustration. Sorry, ladies. Many of you ladies like football. But quarterback's got this great play, right? But what he doesn't know is that the defense is going to blitz. So he drops back with this great idea when suddenly he sees five 300-pen men rushing at him, about to smash him and break his shoulder. Okay. Um, so, so, so what does he do? He just, he just throws a ball somewhere. Last-minute idea, right? See, the gospel is not something that God thought of last minute. He planned the gospel before the foundation of the world. He planned for Christ to be slaughtered for our sins. But verse 2 says, he then promised it beforehand. So this is what's really cool. The Old Testament is full of promises and predictions about the coming of Jesus. And this is a really interesting way to think of your Christian faith. Your Christian faith is not just taking off your brains and going, oh, I don't know, they told me to believe in Jesus. You can search the Old Testament scriptures, which, which the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found, which date back hundreds of years before Christ, and you can go, okay, what did God promise about the coming of Messiah? He promised in Isaiah he would suffer. He promised in the Psalms he would rise. He promised he would reign. He promised he would come again. And so Paul says this gospel is that one gospel. There's only one way people have ever been saved. It's through this gospel. And then the, the person that the gospel is about, is about Jesus, verse 3. It concerns his son. It's all about Jesus. That's what the gospel is about. It's about God's son, Jesus. Now, he's not going to tell us everything about the gospel, but he's got two things he wants to say up front. The first one, he says, I want you to know this about God's son, Jesus. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, we might think here he just means Jesus became a man, and that's true. We call that the incarnation, but it's much deeper than that. It's not just, hey, by the way, the gospel is about Jesus. He became a man. But he says, he was born of the seed of David. And that's because in the Old Testament, God had promised that his coming Savior, his coming Deliverer, 
would be a descendant of King David. Now imagine God appeared to you in a dream and he said, your kid's going to be president. Years ago, we would be proud of that. Now we go, please God, no, no, everyone will hate him, right? (laughs) But if God appeared to you and said, your kid's going to be president forever, you would be like, wait, he he can't because he's going to die. But God said to David, one of your descendants will be king forever. And so the Jews began to have this hope of this anointed king, the Messiah. We call it the messianic hope. And the Messiah had to be of the line of David. That's why when the angel came to Mary, he said, Mary, you're going to have a son, but he ain't going to just be a normal son. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And so the idea here is that Jesus has fulfilled the Davidic promise of Messiah. That's why those of you who have Jewish friends, I love to ask Jewish people this question. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah who was promised, what Messiah are you looking for? Let's look at your scriptures and see what Messiah was predicted. He'll have to be a descendant of David. He'll have to suffer. He'll have to rise again. Why couldn't it be Jesus? So Paul says, this gospel is about Jesus, the fulfillment of the messianic descendant of David as a human. But then he says in verse 4, but there's one other thing we need to understand. He also was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Now, that's a weird verse because what do you mean he was declared to be the son of God? I thought he was the son of God. This word declared is almost never meaning declared. It almost always in Greek means appointed right? Like given a new position. Okay, so if your boss came to you and said, I'm going to appoint you now as the supervisor, you were just given a new position. And I feel strongly that that's what Paul meant here when he says Jesus was appointed with power to be the son of God. But let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of people would say, well, wait, I thought he was the son of God. And he was, okay? Because this is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God created Jesus. And so Jesus is not eternal. Jesus isn't God. You don't worship Jesus. That's heresy. That's damning heresy. The Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus has always been God's eternal son. But when the Bible says he was appointed to be the son of God, it's talking about a new position that Christ was given as a result of his sufferings. David said it this, or Peter said it this way in Acts 2. God has now declared Jesus to be both the Lord and Christ. He has made him Lord and Christ. And so what the New Testament teaches is that when Christ ascended back into heaven, he was given this new appointment as son of God in a new way where he reigns. And all of the judgment of the world has been given unto him. And all the authority of God has been given unto him. So that the Bible says because he died and was obedient to death, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not focusing here on, oh, Jesus became the son of God. He's saying Jesus has inherited this new position as Lord of all. And all power has been given unto him. And this is why it's really cool to think, if I'm a Christian, my Lord and Savior who lives inside of me is reigning as Lord of all. So when he comes out of the grave, he goes, all power is given unto me. 
All authority is given unto me. All judgment is given unto me. And then he tells the disciples, go and make disciples. And they're like, huh. And he goes, but I didn't stutter, right? All power is given unto me. And they're like, yeah, to you, but you're not down here with us. And he goes, precisely. And I am with you always. So this Lord Jesus, to whom all authority is given, who sits reigning as Lord of the universe, is with you if you're a Christian. And he will help you to win your kids and disciple your kids. He will help you to be in a tough marriage. He will help you to live the Christian life because he's Lord of all. And we'll love and worship him forever for that. Now, Paul's going to go on then and talk about his, his thankfulness for the Roman church and then his prayer to come and see them. Now, Paul prayed for all of his churches, but this church he had never been to. But he would say to churches, I thank God, and except for the book of Galatians, he always found something to thank God for, even the Corinthians with all their problems. He said, I thank God for your church because you're really gifted. I want you to think, if Jesus or if Paul prayed for our church, what would he thank God for? So this is interesting because look what Paul thanked God for the church at Rome. Remember, he's never been there. And there's not just one, don't picture like this one Calvary chapel. There's a bunch of little Gentile communities, churches all over Rome. But as he thinks about Christians in Rome in their little assemblies or big assemblies, this is what he says in verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He's never been to Rome, but he goes, you know, I'm in Asia and I'm talking to people, and they're, yeah, I heard that. There's becoming a lot of Christians in Rome. Yeah, I was down in Jerusalem. Yeah, have you heard this? The, the Christianity is really spreading a room. I was in Greece, and, and I heard that Christianity is growing, and there's a lot of people turning to Messiah in Rome. And so Paul praises God that the gospel is being proclaimed because of the testimony of, of the Romans. In fact, this is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He goes, you know what's so cool about your church in 1 Thessalonians 1? He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you throughout all of Asia Minor. He says, I don't need to say anything. And so then you go, okay, that was back then. What about now? Wouldn't it be cool to go, and it is cool when I meet people, they go, I heard about your church. I'm like, listen, I can explain. I'm really sorry, but you know, <laughs> don't judge a church by that person. But to think that it's individual churches, local churches, it's Christians who have this opportunity to, to, to begin to develop a testimony to advance the gospel so that people say, oh, I heard about that church. Now, the problem is, many times the way people live, we're sort of like, don't tell them you're from our church, right? In fact, A.W. Tozer said the reason there's not more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. But as we're transformed by the gospel, it's my prayer that the, that, that, that the, the the glory of the gospel will be proclaimed all over. And you, be careful if you're going to stay here. You saw, saw Tori. Last week we saw um, Randy Ramona. Might be you next. Might be me next. We want to go all over the world advancing the gospel for the glory of God. So Paul thanked God for them. Now notice he says, verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now, just real quickly, where you see the phrase preaching of the gospel, that's in italics. That means it's not in, in the original language. So here's what it literally is. God whom I serve in the gospel. Now, I want you to think about that. If you, if you were to have a little business card, if you're a Christian, 
is not just for preachers. What, what do you do for a living? Well, I work here, but my life, I serve God in the gospel. You're like, no, no, that's just for ministers. No, that's for every Christian. We all serve God. This, is, this word for serve is a priestly term of worship. We serve God in the gospel by giving, praying, working in our church, trying to develop a godly marriage, raising our kids. All that we do, we're serving God in the gospel. It's not just preaching. That's why I'm not sure I even like that they added that. But he says, I want you to know something. I pray always for you. And I ask God something. If at last I may succeed in coming to you. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, look down at verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented. I'm going to take a moment here to talk about God's will. A lot of Christians are always thinking, what does God want me to do? I'd like to try something. In fact, somebody said to me today, I'd like to maybe try to help people with special needs. But a lot of times Christians are like, I'm trying to figure out what's God's will. What does he want me to do? And they sort of think that you just go out on a hill and you just go, "Mm," and suddenly God will speak to you and he'll be like, teach Sunday school or set up chairs, right? I got a better idea. Try something. Paul says, I prayed to come to Rome, and I tried, and I was hindered, and I'm hoping at last, by the will of God, that I can come. So don't just sit around waiting for some revelation from heaven. You ever try to move the wheels on a car when it's still? If it's moving, it's a lot easier. So Paul looked at ministry some, he didn't just wait around, oh God, do you want me to go to Rome? He bought his ticket, he got on the boat, and they said, get off, and he goes, okay, it's not God's will right now. So try something. And it's not a failure if, it, you know, a thousand people didn't come to my Bible study. But, but be active in exploring and trying to do things for God. And Lord, if, which school should I go to? Apply. And if God closes the door. All right? But then he went on to say something really cool. I could picture an apostle being like this. I want to spend a little time with you so you could benefit from all of my blessings because I'm an apostle. But Paul was a down-to-earth guy. He's like, look, this is not a one-way thing where you peons sit at my feet and praise me and I bless you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He said in verse 12, I want to be with you that I might be encouraged together with you while I'm among you. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. We've all had that aha moment. You're in Sam's club, the guy in front of you start talking. You're a Christian? Yeah, oh, where do you go to church, right? And all of a sudden... Oh, this guy shares faith in Christ with me. And we begin to build each other up. But much deeper than that is the importance. And this is why we can't beg you enough to get connected in Christian community. In other words, get into some sort of a small group, whether it's a men's study, a women's study. Get with other Christians. Because Paul says here, look, this is how we grow. We're encouraged by one another's faith. My wife and I have a small group that we meet in our home. We're off for the summer. We had a picnic a couple weeks ago with our group. It was so great to get together. And tomorrow night, we're hitting the ground running. We're going to start a study of Galatians. But just to be back together again. How was your summer? Sometimes we'd spend our whole small group meeting praying for one another. But there's something about being with other Christians. That's what's going to help you to grow. So if you're disconnected and you're isolated and you're not involved in any connection with Christians, you you are not going to grow. Have you ever heard a Christian say, yeah, last summer I went out on an island and I just read my Bible and that was the best summer of my life, changed my life. No, it's, hey, I worked at this camp 
or I got into this study, or I started meeting with a friend. So, so think about that when people go, oh, I didn't get much out of that church. Well, first of all, if you're only coming here as a consumer, we would encourage you to continue to shop around. Because <laughs> we're not looking for Christian consumers. We're looking for Christians who both want to be encouraged, but also want to be an encouragement. So when people go, oh, nobody was friendly to me. The Bible says if you want to have friends, be friendly. So don't come and say, oh, I didn't get anything out of it. And even in a small group, when you don't come, it's not just, well, it doesn't matter if I'm not there. Yeah, it does matter. Because your presence, your friendship, your embrace could be a great encouragement to one another. And so not only do we encourage one another as we sit down and pray and talk about life, but Paul actually said, in addition to encouraging you, he said in verse 11, I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strengthened. Now, that's kind of weird. Because the New Testament teaches that believers receive your spiritual gifts at conversion. So if you're a Christian, you didn't feel it happen, but the Bible says each one of us has received a special gift. You have a divine enablement from the Holy Spirit that's inside of you that, that's going to unleash and give you a passion to minister to others. There are speaking gifts, like evangelism, teaching, encouragement, discipleship, mentoring, those type of things. There are serving gifts. You can, you can do a study of the gifts of the Spirit. There's 22 of them listed in the New Testament. But once in a while, people would receive gifts in an unusual way. Paul said to Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was bestowed on you through the laying on of hands. So at first read, this looks like Paul saying, I can't wait to come to Rome because I'm going to line you all up and I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a gift. You're going to get this gift. You're going to get this gift. But I don't think that's what he means here. Most commentators, even though it's the same word for gift, Take it in a broader sense here, and I think they're right. He's simply saying, I want to impart a blessing to you. In fact, Tom Schreiner says, when Paul says, I want to impart a gift to you that you might be established, he's simply saying, I want to teach you the gospel more deeply because that'll be the gift, that as you're learning the gospel more deeply, you're going to be so much stronger in your Christian faith. And if that's what he means, then God, that's my prayer, that I can impart the gospel more deeply, that everybody will be established. But I also need you, and our pastors and elders, we need one another. So then Paul goes on to say this, and I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but I've been prevented, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also as among the Gentiles. Now remember, Paul wasn't interested in tooting his horn, like, guess how many souls I saved? He says, for the glory of God. But he also was unashamed to say, I want to bear fruit for God. And the problem is a lot of Christians don't know what that means. I'm going to share with you, when you think of fruit, and God wants you to bear fruit, Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. I want you to think of three things. The first area where fruit will show up in your life is in your character. God's in the miracle business of changing us. Left to ourselves, we're selfish, hateful, lustful, just bad people even if you act good on the outside, right? Then the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and God says, he begins to eradicate the deeds of the flesh, outbursts of anger, impatience. And then it says, you begin to grow and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what will that look like? Love. You'll be a more loving person. You'll think less about yourself. You'll be more patient, love, joy, peace. You'll have more peace. You won't be freaking out every day. Patience. 
You'll, you'll be more gentle with your children, gentle with the cashier who gives you the wrong change, kindness. You'll be more faithful. You'll actually learn to put the fork down when you need to, go to bed when you need to because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Those who are struggling with addictions are going, wow, the Spirit's helping me to say no to sin. And so pray that, God, I want my character to change. Pray that for me. That's fruit. And Paul says, as we engage the gospel with one another, I want to bear fruit. But that's not the only evidence of fruit. And pray for that, for our church, for the people in your group, for your family and friends and yourself. But pray, secondly, that you'll bear fruit in your conduct. And the place where that's going to show up is you're going to, you're going to help people more. In Colossians 1, this is what Paul said, I pray that you will bear fruit in good works. Right? So, so you'll be more inclined to say, you know what? Instead of doing this, I think I'm going to go over and visit so-and-so in the nursing home. Or, hey, see that guy with a flat tire? We could stop and help them. Or, hey, did you guys hear about so-and-so? Their, their family's in need. Why don't, why don't we save up or, or, or give something that we were looking forward to and, 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 and help them? And see, this is the mark of a growing Christian, as Jesus says, you'll do good works. And so ask yourself, is that any part of my radar? Because that's not automatic. You can come and listen to the Bible. But Titus, Paul told Titus, remind Christians to do good works so they're not unfruitful. So I'm just going to follow Paul's advice. Pray that God will help you to do good. Because that's what's going to spread the testimony of the gospel is as Christians are bearing fruit. But the third area of fruit, and this is really cool too, is actual converts. Seeing people get saved. Paul says, I want to come to Rome that I can bear some fruit. I want to see some people get saved. And some of you are going, well, what would that look like? Because, um, Pastor Tom, I, I, you know, every time I turn around, you're talking to somebody, they get saved. This just doesn't happen for me. Listen, you don't have to be the person that leads them to Christ to bear the fruit of converts. Paul says, one person sows, another person waters, but God gives the increase. And then he doesn't say this. Each man is rewarded, whoever is the last man in line that leads him to Christ. He says, we're all rewarded for our labor. So every time you build a relationship with an unbeliever, you pray for them. You come and set up chairs so that people can come hear the word. You invite people to something. You're engaging yourself and saying, I want to win people to Christ. Like John talked about last week. I want to be an ambassador for Christ. My wife and I always laugh, and you've heard me tell this story. She had a, a, a neighbor friend, a lady who had come over to our house, and Tammy's sitting there talking to her, and I sat down, and three of us were talking. Tammy had built a relationship, invited her over, and I just sat down, of course, being the pastor, she, so she starts asking me questions. Next thing you know, I lead her to Christ. Tammy's getting some tea or something, and so after she left, I was like, that's so cool that, that she got saved, and Tammy goes, yes, yeah, I you stole my fruit, <laughs> and we laughed, but at the end of the day, the truth is, you know, you could witness to somebody and then take them to Harvest Crusade and go, darn, why'd they go forward? Now Greg Laurie gets the credit, right? <laughs> it's not about who gets the credit. It's the fruit of converts. And you know what's exciting? Almost every week, even this morning, we saw another person come and profess faith in Christ. Amen. Pray that God will bear much fruit here. We'll figure out if there's, this, this service is thin compared to the first service. We'll figure out you know, what to do, but just pray that God will continue to draw people and, and save them through his powerful gospel, amen? It's really exciting, and it's all about God for his glory. But let's close with verse 16, because then Paul says this. He says, I want to tell you something. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. So it's kind of simple. Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And then he said, go into all the world and tell people, I will forgive their sins. I will give them everlasting life if they will repent and turn and believe in me and trust me as Lord and Savior and receive my gift, but also identify with me. Jesus said this. He said, if you're ashamed of me in this generation, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my Father. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And one of the marks of a person who truly believes is that they go, you know what? I don't care what people think anymore. I am confessing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I had someone call me a while back. They said, Pastor, I'm Jewish. Could I become a Christian and just not tell anyone? Because my grandma, my, no, this is the truth. My grandma, don't laugh at them, this is the truth. My grandma would go off the deep end. If I told her that I confessed Jesus Messiah, could I become a Christian and not do that? I said, no, sorry. Jesus doesn't have any place for, you know, well, no, I don't want anybody to know I'm a Christian. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess it with your mouth. In fact, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so this morning as we close, we Christians are so blessed. We embrace the gospel and we have the privilege now of growing and bearing fruit. Be praying that many more will study with us. I'm charging every one of you what you're learning. There's no reason why you couldn't take somebody else to the book of Romans and read it with them and teach them. But let's be praying that the gospel powerfully bears fruit. But, but in closing, I want to simply say this. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing a song. And I, I don't do this all the time. But once in a while, I like to give people an opportunity to confess that they want to follow Christ. We, we don't always have a place for that. If, if we only wait till baptism, it's like, oh, you can only confess that you're a, a Christ follower once every six months. So we're going to stand together. and We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. But this is the invitation I'm going to ask you. If you believe with all your heart this morning that Jesus Christ died and rose for you and you want to be saved or you've recently made that decision, I know that I'm a follower of Christ and you have never made that public before. Now what happens is sometimes Christians will come again and again. You don't have to keep coming. If you've come forward and professed your faith before, don't come again. You don't need to keep doing that. But if, if you've never publicly just said, you know what, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a believer. Maybe this morning you're making that choice. Or maybe this is something you made last week or six months ago and you just haven't told anybody. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I just want you to come and stand with me. That doesn't make you a Christian. And if you don't come, it doesn't mean you're not saved. But I'll tell you, it can be a real catalyst to your own spiritual growth when you go, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. I love Jesus. I believe in him. I'm saved, and I want to confess him as my Lord and Savior. So let's stand together. Let's sing. And don't wait. Just come and stand with me if God's putting that on your heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Turning back. No turning back. If God's tugging at your heart, come and confess him. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, 
the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Well, God bless you. I hope you have a great week. If you are afraid to come or you have any questions, if you'll just give me your number on the way out, we'll be glad to set you up with someone to talk to. But let's just be praying that we'll both live and share the gospel. And maybe if you have a friend, you say, hey, you want to come study the book of Romans? And by the way, you're allowed to read ahead. So go ahead and start reading the rest of chapter one for next week. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the gospel. We love you, Lord Jesus. We confess you as our Lord and Savior. We thank you that you reign as the son of David, the Messiah, Lord of all, and you're coming again, and we pray that much fruit will be born through this church, through each person who's a believer here, and that our faith will be proclaimed throughout Bucks County, throughout Pennsylvania, and throughout the world. And we give you all the praise and glory, and we look forward to being back together tonight as our uh, brothers and sisters who are members will Continue to advance what you're doing here. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Oh, yeah.